I want to understand how you think about the problem more so than the output. I want to think about your process going to this problem. And I don't want to create homework for you, but I want to think about, I want to see how you think about, hey, how does marketing scale? Oh, well, marketing is 20% of, you know, revenue in year one. Like, how is it going to go down to 12% in year two, 7% in year three? You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Andrew Gluck. Andrew is the general partner at Irreverent VC. He invests in direct-to-consumer, advertisement technology, and next-generation startups. He's usually one of the first investor investing $10,000 to $50,000 in startups. He's based in New York, and let's hear from him how he makes investments in startups. Andrew, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to connect and chat today. Tell us about yourself, starting with how did you enter into the investing world? Yeah, so my background's really heavily focused and still is in the digital marketing world. So I went to Brandeis for undergraduate. I studied economics. I always loved the interplay of marketing and finances and how those kind of connected. As I graduated in, in 2010, 2011, digital marketing was still very nascent. It was really focused on AdWords and paid search, but started to get into that world. And after about three, four years in the industry, I went out and co-founded a digital marketing agency called Agency Within. I grew it with a partner to be the largest independent digital marketing agency in the US. There's about six holding companies, but outside those big six holding companies, which are made up of smaller companies, Agency Within was the largest in terms of spend under management. I worked with a lot of venture capital backed companies, a lot of DOC companies, companies that were early on in the space, companies like Jack Irwin, Trey Coffee, Bandir, Zola, Lola, Petflow, Helix Sleep, Twillery. Also, we also work with a lot of more enterprise clients, clients like Nike, Intuit, Shake Shack, and Spanx, and ran the agency for almost four years. I had a successful exit from the agency in 2018, took a little bit of time off. As I was thinking about the next thing, I really wanted to bring forward the parts I loved about the agency, which were working with early stage entrepreneurs, working at that kind of zero to one, go to market, thinking through unit economics, LTV, CAC, pricing, helping with narrative and storytelling, but really kind of being that early trusted marketing individual and the parts of the agency that I wasn't looking to get into. Again, some of the more transactional nature, having employees, growing teams. I, I really wanted to be, you know, nimble and flexible and find the places to fit in where I thought I could add value. So started doing some early stage investing and advising in early 2019 and been doing this for about two years now. I've made 20 direct investments. So investing my own capital, check sizes of 10K to 50K. And I've done a few, probably a handful, maybe seven or eight investments via AngelList through syndicates. Like you mentioned, really focused on three core areas, on direct consumer, on ad tech, and on next-gen commerce. So places where I feel I can truly add value based on my experience, based on my network, and based on you know, kind of really getting my hands dirty as well. 
Well, this is interesting. You had long history in marketing before you jumped into investing. What kind of startups do you invest in? What stage do you like to meet these entrepreneurs and what types of investments do you make? Is it pre-seed, seed stage or much earlier stages? Yeah, I'd say it's historically it's been seed or earlier. I've done some later stage stuff through the syndicates, but really core thesis is around being as early as possible. I've invested in companies in their first round multiple times. I've invested before lead investors were you know, identified or really solidified. I've, I've helped make those introductions that have led to, to seed investments. And I've been the first investor, you know, only investor in rounds multiple times too. And that's where I'm like really passionate is getting involved early with kind of that founding team where there's that you know energy and excitement, that ambition, and you know, especially on the financial side, on the valuation side, like valuations are in my mind a lot more attractive. I don't think that much gets changed or de-risked before the next round of capital, whether it's 12 to 18 months later, but the valuations are, are higher. I, I feel like I can I can trust myself between diligencing and also adding value to offset enough of that risk of being that step earlier. Plus, I'm new to the game. I'm not Sequoia and Andreessen and others aren't calling me to, to fill in the round. I have to find some of those diamonds in the rough before they become the, the hot company. You mentioned that you've made 20 plus investments. Where are these companies located? You're based in New York. Do you prefer to invest locally or do you also invest outside New York? So great question. It's it's funny because right before Corona and, and COVID up, upended everything and changed the world, I was really focused on, on New York City and was leaning heavily towards only doing New York City investments going forward, especially with being early, wanted to meet with these founding teams, wanting to work out of their offices and things like that in terms of you know adding value and really being with them. But with both Corona and everyone moving over to Zoom, it's made investing across different regions a lot easier. I still invest exclusively in US, North America. I've invested in a Canadian company, but with kind of US structures in place, focused you know, really anywhere anywhere in the US. So you're you're set up to go outside of New York, even before the pandemic and COVID-related restrictions started. So that's interesting. How has COVID changed the business for you? Has it become easier in some ways or is it more challenging because you're not able to meet people often? I think it's it's funny because what happened in the, I'll talk about the D2C world as like kind of a microcosm. It's yes. easier than ever to start a company in D2C and harder than ever to scale it. I feel like it's easier than ever to get quote unquote deal flow between inbound, between just people are seeing more decks, sharing more decks, like people are, instead of having to do, not having to do, but for, for lack of a better word, having to do, you know, an in-person meeting in the city, schedule, arrange it, you know, it's two weeks later, you have to go in, you have travel time. Now it's just, you could bang out a bunch of Zoom calls in a day. Here's my Calendly link or give, shoot me yours and book time. So it's like that top of the funnel has gotten actually broader. It's hard for me also to judge that. I think that's definitely true from what I hear from other people. For me, it's even more so true because as I progressed from when Corona started, it was call it 12 months in or 12 months in for my first check, probably 16 months into the business. Now almost two, two and a half years into the business. So like my deal flow has grown from founders I've met, founders I've invested in, co-investors, building a little bit more of a brand and a name for myself. So 
the deal flow at the top of the funnel has gotten a lot larger and also stronger because it's easier than ever to start start businesses. D2C especially, I think it's true in SaaS. I think it's true in a lot of places. Founders are going and de-risking a lot of the, the businesses, which is great, and getting that first initial customer, that first pilot or launching that MVP versus even two years ago, you know, which was still late in the game of venture, obviously, you're seeing things that were a little bit more likely to be pre-product, pre-launch, pre-revenue. You still see that. It's just, again, founders are doing more and more and it's great for them and it's the thing to do to move the needle forward. So it, it's a little bit of a different skill set that's kind of required nowadays. Why is that happening? Why is it now easier to start a D2C company and why is it harder to grow? Yeah, I mean, easier than ever between Shopify on the website side and, and building out an e-commerce brand and all the apps and plugins, whether it's subscription or referrals or whatever else you want to build into the actual you know platform and product. On the product and manufacturing side, just with more and more of these factories coming online and being able to source from factories. And again, this isn't my area of expertise, but from what I've learned from founders, more and more companies that make it easier to go and create the product too, which is great, which is great. More opportunity is always a good thing. So I'm excited about that. At the same time, harder than ever to scale. So if you look at a lot of the channels that the first D2C or DNVB brands used originally to scale and, and, and get that tremendous growth. Obviously, Facebook and Instagram were, were at the forefront of those, especially D2C, especially if you're a product that's a, a want and not a need. Pet food has search, a lot of search, paid search activity and impressions and searches around it. A, a t-shirt brand or a clothing brand that's new, it's hard to get people to search for that unless they're searching for your brand. You can build that awareness via Facebook and Instagram. At the same time, the cost of impressions there has gone up tremendously. I think it's like four, maybe five X in the past three to five years. So it's, it's just wild where CPMs are, where cost per impression is now versus where, where it was just a few years ago. Yeah, a lot of strong trends there. The internet is really evolving. What questions do you ask these startups when you first meet them? What do you want to know? Yeah, one huge area that I'm really focused on, again, just from being and trying to be really early is trying to hone in on founder market fit. So really trying to figure out, hey, is there a an earned or learned secret that you have from being in this industry, whether working in the industry at a different startup or at a later stage company, or I invested in a, a founder who covered the industry as, a, as an analyst on the PE side, invested in Lunchbox, uh, where the founder was a busboy to CMO at Bear Burger that created a food technology company. So what do you know about the industry that no one else knows? And do you have that instinct around around the space that other people don't to the same degree? If, can you give an example of a startup? Uh, how did you meet the founders? What was the first interaction like? What did you ask them? Yeah, sure. So I invested in a company called Caraway. And Caraway is a direct consumer uh, kitchenware brand. Founder is Jordan Nathan. One of the companies that I worked with on the at my agency is a company called MealPal. The founder, Mary, there got connected to Jordan because they both went to the same university years apart. And I don't even know if she ever even met Jordan really, but she forwarded me the deck. I was interested in meeting in meeting Jordan. And honestly, like my first impression when I first heard, okay, direct consumer kitchenware brand, like 
aren't these a dime a dozen? Like what? Like again, going back to that founder market fit. Like why is this founding team going to win in this space? And seeing the deck and the information that was presented there without going into anything proprietary, but around different marketing channels and funnels and how they were going to approach it. And again, the level of detail and thought that they had given from Jordan's background, he had worked at at Mohawk and Vremi, other kitchenware brands, and basically been GM of the businesses of business lines and, and run them really efficiently and effectively. The way that they thought about supplier relationships, the way they thought about all these different things was just wildly incredible. I met with Jordan and really wanted to understand from that background, like, again, going back, what are these earned or learned insights? And having been running businesses in the space for multiple years, he knew things that other founders in the space didn't. There are not to talk disparagingly about other founders, but when founders come into an industry that they don't know and their their background, their niche is, oh, I'm really good at marketing, like mine would be, or I'm really good at design and branding, or I'm really good at finance and operations, sometimes can lack that same understanding that you get from, hey, I was in this industry. I know what can go wrong. I know how to set up things for success from day one. And now I think Carrie's biggest problem today is keeping in stock. They just keep keep selling out. So that one definitely worked out. Is there something specific that you can share about this situation? What are some insights that they were able to share that was, wow, okay, that's interesting. I'll give an example from, I think the way that most people approach marketing is really, again, it's my background. So I definitely over-index on this and drilling into it with people. And I don't expect founders, even founders with experience in the space to necessarily be as, have the same domain expertise as I do. I've spent 10, 12 years in the industry. I've spent a billion dollars on Google and Facebook, and all the other channels. But the level of detail around, hey, keyword research, this is what we're seeing. This is what we think the cost per click is going to be. This is what we think the conversion rates are going to be. This is our contribution margin dollars on these orders. No, versus a lot of people will just, this is the monthly impressions. And there are some things I don't want to go into uh, on their end. But just that understanding of, hey, this isn't just, it's not just, oh, let's let's go and, and launch. We'll run some Facebook ads. We'll do some influencer, run some podcast ads and things will be good. It was just really thoughtful planning. A lot of times people will bash on Twitter or other places. Oh, don't investors that ask for financial plans and projections, a pre-seed, what a joke. Like don't, you know, talk to those investors. I don't care so much about the projections and like, do you think you're going to get to 5 million or hundred million dollars in three years or five years or whatever it is? I want to understand how you think about the problem more so than the output. I want to think about your process going to this problem. And I don't want to create homework for you, but I want to see how you think about, hey, how does marketing scale? Oh, well, if marketing is, and this isn't necessarily the way I would look at it, but marketing is 20% of you know revenue in year one, like, how is it going to go down to 12% in year two, 7% in year three? And just being, oh, we're going to be more efficient. Okay, that's the dream. That's the goal. But how? Have you given any thought beyond being a spreadsheet monkey and just putting in improvements? A lot of the conversation I have around around things like that, around things like LTV. Oh, well, we're going to get, we're going to get our customers to come back and buy again. Why? Oh, you're going to release a new product? I'm like, this one I hear all the time, the beauty space is, oh, well, we're going to start with this hero product and then we're going to launch this other product and we're going to have eventually seven SKUs and people are going to buy you know, all seven SKUs from us. Go to your vanity, go to your bathroom, look how many different brands are represented. 
you have fewer products from every different brand. Like it's not so easy to cross out or brands will talk about their LTV and I'll be like, that's awesome that you're going to keep customers for two years. That's your best customers you're going to keep for two, three years. What's your weighted average customer lifetime going to be? Is it going to be one and done, one order? And you're going to get 1.3 orders out of customers? Or is it, hey, we'll have a bunch and our drop-off will be between order one and order two will be 30%, another 30% flattens out. Those are the conversations I want to have. Have you have you thought about this? Are, how are you going to think about tracking this when this becomes real? And making sure that that the unit economics and scale and work because you could sell a dollar for 99 cents and, and do a lot of revenue, but eventually you do have to make profit, especially in, in D2C, especially in you know some of these industries. Some other industries, SaaS, if you're going and buying customers and, and increasing recurring revenue, it's a little different. But how do you get from growing and, and blooming to, to, to that actually making money? Yeah, founders who have that founder market fit they usually have thought through the problem. They understand the nuances of the industry. They can go into specific details about CAC and LTV and the trends that are happening and be very comfortable about those discussions. And it's very insightful to talk to them because we all learn a lot from those type of founders. When this whole pandemic started, what I noticed was even some good startups struggle a lot because the personal interaction is not happening. When you're not able to network and meet investors, it becomes a lot harder. Do you feel the same in your uh, areas of focus? Some of the best startups still struggle to fundraise? You know, I, I think it's been one of the one of the challenges is it's never been easier to fundraise and it's never been harder to fundraise. If you're a networked resource founder or a founder with traction and growth, there's there's tons of capital out there and people fighting over each other to, to go and, and get you a term sheet. And if, if you're not, if you're under-networked, under-resourced, you don't have that that same background and you're raising an early an early round and you maybe you have some friends and family, maybe you had a pre-seed round done, maybe this is your first round of capital, but it's harder than ever because you don't have those serendipitous bump-ins at events and, and things like that. For my first year in the industry, from that, honestly, even all the way up to, to Corona, I was making a point of two one or two nights a week trying and going to an event at night whether it was a happy hour whether it was going to a, a startup panel whether it was judging one of these pitch competitions something like that that's how you meet how you have those conversations and meet other investors that's how you meet founders and it's and it's hard and like yes with digital it becomes easier than ever to attend an event or to listen to a podcast or to reach out to someone but it's harder than ever to, to kind of create that connection that you can in person. So for founders, I think it's to really hone that pitch and, and figure out, you know, how do we get fundraising? I think there's a few different ways. One is similar to how I think about deal flow is can I, can I build a personal brand around this problem and spend a few hours a week on Twitter, on LinkedIn or wherever your constituents really are and kind of build a brand in the space around around that problem. And I've tried to do that. And I think in New York City, in direct consumer, early stage companies, I see a really high percentage of those deals because I've stuck my flag on the ground around around that space, tried to produce useful content around that space. So, so you want to do that and that can definitely lead to inbound. Another way is batch and blast. Can you reach different people, either finding their email addresses, going to their websites and filling out forms and 
going in and trying to just get in front of, get your pitch in front of a thousand different people for sure. Um, and you should do that. The third way is can you hone those pitches and go and, you know, if you haven't done this yet, I highly recommend it. Go on, on Crunchbase and find a list of a hundred investors that you want to reach out to that makes sense for your stage, makes sense for your geo, makes sense for your sector who have shown a willingness to invest, whether it's early, whether it's late, whether it's in this type of round, whether it's in gov tech or legal tech or do you see whatever it is, but find the investors that are actually a fit for you and go and, and try and, if you can, find a, a warm intro into them. I look at every inbound. I'm very open to cold outreach but a lot of investors, you're more likely to, to get your, your deck read if they have, if you have a warm intro. But find that, that list of 100 investors. Maybe it's not 100, maybe it's 50. If you can get 50 people who fit your need and fit your geo and stage and sector to read your deck, like you're going to get meetings, you're going to get funded if your product and your team are good. Like That's what it takes. It's a sales funnel, it's a sales pipeline, just like anything else. Yeah, most founders don't approach fundraising that way. If they approach the fundraising process just like they approach the customer sales cycle process, managing the funnel, it would be a lot more efficient for them. What are some pet peeves you have? I think one is unfortunately an under a huge underfunding in female founders, black founders, black female founders, people of color, immigrants, all those things. I think it's a is a huge travesty to just how easy, for lack of a better word, it is to get funded if you come from that more network background, you have this idea, even if you're a kind of Me Too product that's been done before, but you have a new spin on it. You have founders with real revenue and real traction that don't get afforded the same opportunities. It sucks. You Part of my background and what I've gravitated to you know, earlier stage and earlier stage over time has been a desire to work in places and, and work and be involved in things that are meritocratic, where no one gets to decide who wins. It's not political. It's really just about like, what can you accomplish? And that's what's exciting about startups, but it's also a challenge and an opportunity as well. What will convince you to raise your own fund, the next fund? So I guess that's interesting. So now I invest my own capital. I also occasionally advise companies. And at the same time, I still do some marketing consulting on the side as well. It's like a really nice mix of, of everything that I like and I have control over my time and schedule. I haven't yet raised a fund. I don't know if I will. I think it, it kind of depends on a, on a few different factors. But yeah, I think one thing I'd love to see or change in the industry is a little, probably a little bit more humility, a little bit more transparency. VCs, investors especially, present company included in this, shout from the rooftop and they invest in companies. And they invest when their companies get marked up. Then they invest when they then they shout and tweet when their companies get to exit. And like all those things are great, and it's part of you know building a brand. But it's really hard. I was having a conversation before this, but it's even hard for me as an early investor who's you know early in my career in this space, who's trying to remain disciplined in terms of how I invest and my core competencies and valuations and and, and other things. A lot of the Hoopla, a lot of the, the kind of wild valuations and things like that going on seem to be a little bit of a, a distraction sometimes. And I really want to stay in my wheelhouse and, and disciplined, but it's challenging sometimes. 
Yeah, it is challenging indeed. I want to switch to the next segment of our conversation and ask you about community involvement. Is there a non-profit organization that you are passionate about? Which one? Yeah, there's a, a non-profit organization was pretty involved in, still involved in, called Tom Chai Shabbos. They deliver, so I'm an observant Orthodox Jew, and I observe Sabbath. And this organization, they deliver food to those in need, Sabbath food, families in need every Thursday night. I was fortunate to be able to be a supporter of those financially for, for quite some time. Over the past few years, I've gotten more involved in terms of actually going and doing deliveries for them and on a regular basis and being involved, not just, I guess, to, to parallel to, uh, you know, startup life, not just financially, but have sweat equity in the game and, and actually spend time in, in working in the space. This is very interesting. Thank you so much for spending time with me. You talked about how you started your career in marketing, switched to investing, and now you're contemplating whether to raise a fund next. You shared a lot of insights on specific examples, how you evaluate opportunities, look at entrepreneurs and what kind of questions you ask. This is very, very insightful to hear real life stories. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.